You know, uh, when I was interviewing here uh, at Ivanrest Church to um, potentially become pastor, there was one question that came up uh, repeatedly throughout the interview process. Um, I was really expecting to get grilled, um, but one of the main questions that I kept getting over and over was, are you going to do children's messages? Um, and that was partially because, as I understand it, Pastor Joel uh, did a children's message just about every Sunday. I can't say that I'll do them uh, that regularly, uh, obviously. I've already preached here a couple times and not done them up until this point, so I've missed a few weeks. But it is something that I, I would like to keep as a regular part of our worship services. Um, and so I figured uh, looking at the text uh, that we'll be looking at this morning, this would be a good week to, to do the first one. Uh, you see, the text that we're going to be looking at in just a little bit is a, a pretty famous text. It's one that's pretty well known and that I would assume most of us have heard at one point or another. Um, it's Exodus chapter 3. Does anyone know what story Exodus chapter 3 is without looking in your Bibles? Okay. Anyone know what Exodus 3 is? And by the way, adults, I'm looking for a, a child's answer here. <laughs> anyone know? The burning bush. The burning bush, Exactly. Yeah, so Moses and the burning bush and his encounter with God um, at the burning bush. And as I was thinking about this passage, it actually reminded me of an experience that I would have regularly when I was growing up. Um, so I grew up uh, south of Chicago in Illinois, about an hour, maybe an hour and a half uh, from an amusement park uh, called Six Flags Great America. And uh, I love Six Flags. Uh, I went there almost every summer because the school that I went to had a reading program where if you read a certain amount of books, you'd get a free ticket. And so I always made sure that I read enough books to get that ticket and go to Six Flags each summer. The reason why I love Six Flags is because I love roller coasters. Um, roller coasters, I just find them very exciting, a lot of fun. But the, the interesting thing about them is that they also kind of scare me. You see, I'm afraid of heights. And so I have sort of a love-hate relationship uh, with roller coasters as a result. Um, I think they're a lot of fun and very exciting, um, but they also kind of terrify me, especially that first uh, sort of uh, when you're going up that first incline and you're on the, the car is on the chain and they're just sort of slowly taking you higher and higher. I actually close my eyes every single time because I don't want to look around and see how much higher I'm getting. And it's not until that train gets to the top and comes over the edge and then starts to go down that I can open my eyes, get caught up in the excitement and sort of forget you know, the fact that I'm going up and down and, and way up high and all of that. Roller coasters are a lot of fun for me. They're very exciting, but they're also kind of scary. And I have to assume that here in this text, Moses felt very similar. Because as we'll see in just a little bit when we read through it, in Exodus 3, here at the burning bush, Moses has entered the very presence of God. The very presence of God. As Christians, we say that, that God is holy, right? He's holy. What that really means is that he's the opposite of sin. There is no sin in God at all. You know who there is sin in, though? Us. And so as sinful beings to step into the presence of a holy God, I have to imagine, is at the same time terrifying and also incredibly exciting. It's terrifying because we know that we are sinful and we know that God is not. And as we'll see, Moses actually hides his face when he realizes he's in the presence of God. And yet it's exciting and encouraging and in a very strange way comforting because that God who is holy 
intimidating, terrifying, is also the God who loves us and comes to us with news of salvation. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that we serve. It's kind of like a roller coaster, being a Christian. It's both exciting and incredibly wonderful, and also kind of scary at times. And that's what we'll see as we go to our passage this morning. I'd like to ask you to please turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read the first 14 verses of Exodus chapter 3. And like we already mentioned, we are in a sermon series uh, working our way through the book of Exodus uh, during the season of Lent. And this is what the text says. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. So Moses, and Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue my people from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. After you have brought my people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said, suppose I go to the Israelites and tell them that the God of their fathers has sent me. And they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to tell the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, this is the first of what I'm sure will be many Levi stories I tell in my sermons over the next however many years here. Um, I'm sure both you and especially he will eventually grow sick of them. But as an almost uh, two-year-old, Levi is in a stay-close-to-me phase right now. Uh, This has sort of progressed over time because when he was first born, I'm not sure that Levi really had a great awareness of whether or not other people were around. Um, At least he didn't with me. Uh, I think he had a better idea of whether or not mom was around, uh, but as the parent who didn't feed him with my body, um, I was kind of chopped liver for a while. So 
That changed, though, eventually when Sarah went back to work and I started to give him the occasional bottle. Um, And then all of a sudden, he wanted to know whether Dad was around, too. He was still fine if I was in a different room, but he at least wanted to know that I was somewhere nearby. After a while, though, that wasn't good enough either. And Levi didn't want to just know that I was around. Um, He actually wanted to have me in the same room. We didn't necessarily have to always be doing the exact same thing, um, but he at least wanted me there. And uh, when he was still waking up anywhere between about 4 and 6 a.m., we spent many early mornings like that together. Um, I would lay on the floor of his nursery and either uh, read through or work on email or read some book for work, and he would crawl all over the room and me uh, exploring and taking every single book off his shelves and throwing them on the floor. Eventually, that wasn't good enough, though, either, because slowly but surely, when, when Levi would notice that Dad was doing something different than him, he would come scooting over, push whatever I was doing out of the way, and then make me do something with him instead. And now that's progressed even further, because for Levi, it's no longer good enough for us just to be in the same house, no longer good enough for us to be in the same room, no longer good enough even for us to be doing the same thing. Nowadays, I always need to be right next to him, as close as I can possibly get, sharing in every detail and every moment of whatever it is that we're doing together. He'll come over to me, reach up, take one of my index fingers, lead me over to wherever he wants me, then he'll plop down and point, eh, 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 right next to him, as if to say, right here, Dad, right here. This is where I want you, this close, right next to me. Well, in a similar way, God promises that same sort of closeness, that same sort of nearness, that same kind of presence here in our text this morning. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, uh, the book of Exodus opens with God's people, the Israelites, enslaved in Egypt. And so God raises up a deliverer for them, a liberator, a savior. He chooses an adopted Egyptian of Hebrew heritage by the name of Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. The only problem is uh, Moses is a savior who doesn't know if he's actually up to the task of doing the saving. And so God appears to him here in this text in the strangest of ways to reassure him and remind him that he himself will be right there with him every step of the way as he leads his people out of Egypt. I will be with you, God says to Moses, and he will. Before we get to that, though, a bit of context. Uh, Last week, uh, when we last saw Moses at the beginning of chapter 2, he had just been rescued from his basket boat in the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter, adopted as her son and welcomed into Egypt's royal family. And uh, a lot's happened between that text last week and this one. There's only 15 verses, actually, between uh, chapter 2, verse 10, and uh, the beginning of chapter 3, but those 15 verses cover years and years of Moses' life. Uh, For instance, chapter 2, 11 begins by saying, one day, after Moses had grown up, that's how much time we're skipping over here, okay? Um, Moses goes from being barely more than an infant when the passage that we read last week ends in chapter 2, verse 10, to being a young man all grown up here in chapter 2, verse 11, all in about half a verse. 
And while we know next to nothing about what those growing up years uh, would have looked like for Moses, uh, we find out quite a bit about what the next few years will look like for him in the rest of chapter 2. Between chapter 2.11 and 2.25, Moses has almost a whole life's worth of experiences. Uh, for instance, somewhere along the way, it, figures that he figured, it, it seems like he figured out his true heritage um, because 2 verse 11 uh, says that even though he grew up in Pharaoh's household and family, Moses would go out to where his own people were and watch them at their hard labor. In other words, even though he'd been raised as an Egyptian, Moses knew that he was really a Hebrew. And that knowledge eventually leads to a pretty dark episode in Moses' life uh, because in verses 11 through 12, we read that one day Moses went out to visit his people and he saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. He looked both ways to make sure that no one was around and then he actually kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. The next day he was out there again and this time he came across two Hebrews who were fighting each other and so he tries to intervene again but one of them says to him, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me the way that you killed that Egyptian? And Moses is horrified because all of a sudden he realizes that what he had done just the day before had not been as secret as he had thought. And the situation gets even more complicated because Pharaoh finds out and he puts out a death sentence for Moses. And so Moses has to flee for his life He goes to Midian on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula across the Red Sea, which, it turns out, is about the same distance straight across Lake Michigan from the church that I used to serve in Milwaukee to where we all are right now. And no, I didn't just know that. (laughs) Suffice it to say that my Google search history now contains quite a few questions about various distances between Egypt and Midian and Milwaukee and Granville. It's that very technical sort of pastoral work that you needed to hire me to do. Um, Anyway, once Moses is there in Midian, he has an encounter with the daughters of a priest named Jethro at a well. He fends off some competing shepherds who want to keep them from watering their flocks, and then in what will eventually become a theme in scripture of future spouses meeting each other at wells, Moses ends up marrying one of the daughters of that priest, whose name is Zipporah. Apparently, wells were sort of the online dating of the day. Um, And so Moses settles down, and he and his new wife, Zipporah, have a son. They start a family, and Moses becomes a shepherd for his father-in-law. And in the process, he all but forgets where he came from and his people still enslaved back in Egypt. You know who doesn't forget, though? God. And he comes down to rescue his people. It all starts with Moses meandering around the wilderness of Midian one day. Uh, It was probably a day like any other for him. Um, He was going about his work as a shepherd, tending his father-in-law's flock. This day, however, he just happened to be leading them past Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And as tends to happen, when people find themselves someplace associated with God, something strange occurs. Moses encounters a bush on fire, and the text doesn't say exactly what he noticed, but one way or another, Moses notices that this this bush is not burning like anything else that he's seen before. It's on fire, but it's not burning up, and this, of course, is strange. If you've ever sat around a campfire, which as a shepherd, Moses most certainly had, then you know that that's not the way fire works. 
And so Moses decides to go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. And that's when it happens. Moses comes over a little closer to take a look and God calls to him from the flames, Moses, Moses, which understandably stops Moses in his tracks. You see, a random bush on fire in the middle of the wilderness is strange enough. A bush that is on fire but doesn't burn up, that's stranger still. But a burning bush that speaks, it's about the strangest thing imaginable. And so through his shock and surprise, Moses manages a meek, here I am. And God responds, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses, as most people do in the presence of the holy, hides his face out of fear. But God goes on. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And this, my friends, is what we call gospel. This is good news. It's good news of redemption, good news of liberation, good news of salvation. And Moses rejects it. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? You know, that's a question, who am I, that I bet a number of us have asked at one point or another over the years when it comes to different things that God has called us to. At least I know that I've asked that question. Uh, I've shared this with some of you already, but I was never going to be a pastor. Um, I first started to discern a call to ministry when I was in high school, but something else that you should know about high school, Brandon, is that I didn't exactly fit the pastor stereotype. I hesitate to even show you this, um, but this... <laughs> thank you for laughing. Appreciate it. This is what I looked like as a junior in high school. This is one of the few photos that survives of me from high school because my dad refused to take photos of me during high school despite the fact that I was apparently a dead ringer for him from the 1970s. This was actually the photo that my church took of me before I made profession of faith so that people knew what I looked like. And they put it in the church bulletin. So, uh, as you can see, I had hair down on my shoulders. What you can't tell from this picture, though, is that I was heavily involved in the local punk rock scene um, in Lansing, Illinois, where I grew up south of Chicago. I spent almost every Friday and Saturday night in local coffee shops, American Legions, and VFWs, where the haze of the cigarette smoke obscured the ceiling, and you couldn't have a conversation over the noise of the music. And I loved it. I even played guitar in my own band, and I was convinced, convinced, that that is what I was going to do with my life. I was going to play in my band, we were going to get signed to a record label, put out an album, make it big, and I was going to be a rock star. And so when that still small voice started to, to whisper to me, hey, 
maybe you should consider pastoral ministry instead. I wanted nothing to do with it. Because my response to that was, that's not who I am. That's not what I'm like. That's not what I'm interested in. And that is not who I'm going to be. Who am I to become a pastor, Lord? Who am I? And I know I'm not the only one here asking that, who's asked that question before, because this is a church, and we're here at a worship service on a Sunday morning, or tuning in via the live stream. And so I can safely assume that most, if not everyone listening to me right now, is a Christian. Not only that, but because this is a church on a Sunday morning in the United States, I can safely assume that most, if not everyone listening, is an American, or at least influenced by American culture. And that is why I know that I'm not the only person who's asked that question before, who am I? You see, I think one of the most sinister lies that Satan has been able to uh, infiltrate and spread throughout the church, at least the North American one, is the idea that being a Christian is easy. Despite the massive biblical and historical evidence to the contrary, we've largely bought into the false idea that being a Christian automatically means a life of ease, a life of comfort, and a life of guaranteed, uninterrupted earthly blessings. And that's simply not true. That may be the case for some of us, and it certainly is a blessing when our lives work out that way. I don't mean to discount that. But nowhere does the Bible or the history of the Christian church guarantee us that that will be the case. And here's why it's such a sinister lie to think that it does. Because if and when, if that's how we think our faith works, that it's all going to be rainbows and unicorns and just one blessing after the other after the other and that we'll always have everything that we want and never anything that we don't. If and when it doesn't work like that, it'll shake our faith to the core. I've only been a full-time pastor for about seven years and I already can't tell you how many people I've met who are no longer Christians because their life didn't end up matching what they were told it would automatically be if they believed in Jesus Christ. Sometimes, as Christians, we might experience things that we rather wouldn't. We might have to do things that we don't always necessarily enjoy. And like Moses, God might call us to things that make us ask, but who am I? For instance, who am I to tell my unbelieving neighbor about Jesus? Who am I to speak out against the unethical practices at my place of work? Who am I to stand up to the bully at school? Who am I to fight for justice and fairness in a society that no longer seems to remember what those words even mean? Who am I to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ in a culture that ridicules me for it? Who am I? Often when we ask that question, it's self-deprecating. We ask, who am I, as a way of really asking, what good am I? What use can I be? Why don't you go and choose someone else for this task, God? Because I just really don't want to do it. At least that's what Moses seems to be saying. Under the surface of this question, who am I, what Moses really seems to be asking is pleading with God to go a different direction. This is an attempt to wiggle out from under the call that God is trying to give him here. It's a not-so-subtle suggestion to God by Moses to send someone, really anyone else, to save his people. 
Just don't send me, in essence, is what Moses is saying. What's interesting, though, is that the way that God responds to Moses' question, who am I, makes clear that he's not actually going to be the one doing this work of salvation anyway. In his comments on this passage, Old Testament scholar Peter Enns points out that Moses' question here actually can be read two different ways. Um, First, in asking who am I, Moses could be asking something similar to what we've already been talking about. He could, in essence, be, be saying, look, I'm not that good. I'm not qualified. I'm not equipped. I don't want to do this. But Enns points out that because of the way Moses phrases the question in the original Hebrew, he could instead be asking something else. Instead of asking, who am I, in the self-deprecating way we've been taking it, Moses could instead be asking, who is the I that we're talking about here anyway? In other words, instead of asking God, who am I, to find out who God thinks he, Moses, is, he could instead be asking God that question to figure out who it is that they're actually talking about in the first place. Who is the I that's going to do the saving Who is the I who's going to redeem the Israelites and lead them out of Egypt? Who is the I who is going to free them from their slavery and lead them into a new way of life? Who is the I, who is the subject of that question who's going to do all of that? Is it Moses or is it God? Who's truly going to be the savior of this people? And it turns out that either way the answer is the same because regardless of how we take Moses' question here in verse 11, God's response first in verse 12 and then in verse 14 answers it perfectly. In verse 12, God says to Moses, I will be with you. And then after a bit more prodding by Moses in verse 13, God actually ends up revealing his divine name, saying, I am who I am. This is what you are to tell the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And that settles it. Enns writes, God's response to Moses' question in verse 12, I will be with you, is a clear play on words with the I am phrase in verse 14. And I will be and I am are actually the exact same word in Hebrew. So when God says, I will be with you, and then a verse or two later says, I am, it's the same exact word. The I am is with Moses. Moses' assertion that he cannot do this task is correct. But it's also entirely beside the point. He is not doing the saving. Moses says, I cannot do this. Yahweh responds, you're not. I am. I'll be honest, folks, this is one of those places in Scripture where you can see, even in the English, how cool and multi-layered the Bible is. Let's just break this down together for a second. Moses encounters a burning bush in the wilderness. God calls out to him from the bush. Moses responds, here I am. God gives him a command and a commission to save his people. Moses waffles, and that here I am quickly becomes a who am I. And so God responds, who are you? It doesn't matter who you are. It only matters who I am. I am who I am, and I will be. I am with you. And my friends, there is a whole theology of God's power and grace and salvation wrapped up in that. Because the same is true for us. Ultimately, it doesn't matter who we are either. It doesn't matter if we're the right kind of people or the wrong kind of people. 
It doesn't matter if we're specially talented and gifted in all the ways that we want to be or just kind of ordinary. It doesn't matter if we're rich or poor, male or female, successful or prone to failure. It doesn't matter if we have the right background, the right skin color, or the right set of credentials behind our name. And it doesn't matter if that name is Dutch either. Who knew that you would hear heresy from the pulpit this morning? (laughs) It doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is the God who calls us. He's the one who equips us for the work he's given us to do. He's the one who calls us as his people to serve him where he leads. And he is the one who will accomplish his purposes for his glory and the glory of his kingdom. You see, it's our God who calls us. It's our God who is with us, and it's our God who saves. And that brings us to the gospel. You see, this would not be the last time that God appeared to shepherds in a wilderness with an announcement of peace and goodwill. We actually see that happen again many years after this, a couple millennia, in fact. On a quiet Palestinian night in a field just outside Bethlehem, God would once again appear to some shepherds. Like Moses, they were terrified, hiding their faces, hoping not to die. But just like with Moses, they didn't need to be afraid because God came to them not to announce judgment or punishment for their sins, but rather good news of great joy. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This time, though, that gospel would not just be for one group of people caught in slavery, but rather for all people caught in the slavery of sin. That's what we believe about Jesus Christ. He is our true Moses, our ultimate, our ultimate liberator, our one and only redeemer. And it's because of him that we are no longer slaves. Instead, because of him, we are the very children of our God. Thanks be to him. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your presence and nearness. Our sin could have made that impossible. And yet you have made a way for us to still have a relationship with you. You have given us a savior and a liberator who has led us out of our bondage to our sin, brought us back to you so that we could know you and experience your love and grace to us. We thank you for that savior, Lord, and his name is Jesus. And we praise and worship you and him for the salvation that you have made possible. We pray this all in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.